0: I'm reading this morning from Romans chapter three. I'm gonna read verse nine down to verse 20. Um, It starts on page 940 in the Pew Bible if you're using that in front of you. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, cheer up. You are a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And those aren't my words. They're, they're Jack Miller's. If you don't know who Jack Miller is, uh, Jack founded World Harvest Mission, now uh, Surge. We have missionaries that are sent out by Surge. He's also the founding and planting pastor of New Life church in Jenkintown, just down the road from us, love Jack Miller, love his, love his books. But these, these words are his, but they could just as well have been Paul's too, because they capture so well what Paul's worked so hard to convince us of since the beginning of his letter, namely that you and I, no matter where we stand with Jesus this morning, you and I are far worse sinners than we ever dared imagine. So cheer up, right? Well, no, only if there's more to Jack's quote. Only if there is hope on the other side, and there is. But we're going to have to wait till the end to hear it. If you know how that quote ends, by the way, don't share it with those next to you, okay? Let's wait till the end. By the way, if you're new or visiting with us this morning, uh, if this is your first time, we're so glad that you're here. We've been in a study through the book of Romans, uh, a year-long study, and we've been in this book for the last uh, few weeks. Uh, Martin Luther says this about Romans. He says, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We have got a treasure in this book, don't we? So let's dig in. Today, we're going to wrap up the first big section of Paul's long letter, one that started all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, before we look at the, the end of this lengthy argument, let's go all the way back to the beginning and just briefly recap where we've been so far. Remember, Paul, beginning uh, his letter, he lays out for us a vision of the gospel that is based on faith. Chapter 1, verse 17, captures the essence of this book. Paul says this. He says, For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, after establishing the premise that God gives righteousness, and he gives his righteousness as a gift, Paul moves into this this blistering, this sobering analysis of the sinfulness of mankind, beginning in verse 18, chapter one. You know if humanity uh, or human depravity were a, a gem or, or a diamond of some port, some sort, Paul, Paul has uh, been rotating that gem. He's been rotating that diamond, helping us see from all sorts of angles just how messed up humanity is, just how deep our ruin, how deep our sin runs. So then we get to chapter two, and Paul then makes this shift, and he gets eye level with the ultra-religious of the day, this, his Jewish audience, and he begins to speak uh, to their hearts because he knew that they'd be, there'd be some in the crowd that, who would hear these words and think, I'm, I'm glad I'm not that guy. These things obviously don't apply to me. You remember the Jews, Thought that in some way they were better than or in better standing before God than their Gentile friends because of the things that they had or that the things that they did. But Paul is like, look guys, you think that these things make you better or put you in a better standing before God, but they don't and they can't. Merely having God's law, merely having his promises it's not going to cut it. See, Paul's leveling the playing field. No matter who you are, who you think you are, whether you think of yourself as being you know, super religious or irreligious, Paul wants his readers to know deep in their bones that they are worse sinners than they ever dared imagine. See, the Jews that Paul's writing to, they need Jesus. Gentiles need Jesus. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. Paul's been kicking the crutches out from under us, cutting away the grounds that we may think we have for being right with God, having a right standing with him. And he's not done yet. See, the inevitable question and the one that Paul's been relentlessly driving us to since chapter 1 is found at the beginning of our passage this morning. Chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says, what then? What should we conclude? Like, what do you make of all of this? It's the question that Paul's anticipating that his Jewish audience is asking him, and it's the one that we need to be asking him as well. And Paul's answer is this, in a nutshell, it's not good. Left to ourselves, we are far worse than we could ever imagine. Imagine you are, uh, you've got a, a checkup tomorrow morning, say 8 a.m., with your, with your doctor, with your primary doctor. Tomorrow morning, 8 a.m., uh, nothing out of the ordinary, just an uh, annual visit. Uh, you get there. It's business as usual. You check in, fill out uh, the same paperwork that you did last year and the year before that and the year before that. Uh, Then you wait around for a bit until you're called back. Eventually, you're called back. Doctor comes in. After chatting for a bit, begins his thing. Nothing, Nothing crazy here, just a normal checkup. Until he spots something that concerns him. Just to be sure, he sends you to, off to get some tests, some quick scans. A few days go by, but then comes the diagnosis. And it's worse than you could ever imagine. You find out that you have cancer. Now, if, if that were me, I don't know about you, but if that were me, I, ha- I would have all sorts of Questions. I'd want to know what the what prognosis was. What are we talking about here? How bad is it? Am I really that bad? I'd want to know things like, where does this leave me? Is there any hope for a cure? What are my chances of making it through this alive? I think in the same way, Paul, the physician, has given us A diagnosis we're in worse shape than we could ever imagine now I don't know about you but this raises some questions for me like I want to know Paul how bad is it Paul how bad is it I might wonder am I really that bad And if I am, I want to know, where does this leave me? And ultimately, what I really need to know is, is there any hope for me? How bad is it? Am I really that bad? Where does it leave me? Is there hope for me? Those four questions are going to be the roadmap for this morning. So first, Paul, how bad is it? Let's look at verse 9. Paul says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Everyone, everywhere, Paul says, is under sin. We'll come back to this term in a minute, but notice what Paul says before this. He says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. If this sounds a little familiar, it's because Paul's already answered the objections that, that Jewishness wasn't important all the way back in uh, verses 1 through 8. The advantage to being a Jew was, is wrapped up in God's promises for them. But those promises, they don't give them a free pass on God's judgment for guilt. That's what verse 9 is all about. The Jews had the advantage of promises, but not freedom from guilt and shame. So Paul then goes on and says, everyone, everywhere, is under sin. What in the world does it mean to be under sin? Maybe that term sounds strange to you. I don't know. We don't talk about, when we talk about sin, we often don't talk in these ways. For one, being under sin, for Paul, I think we could say, is no different than being unrighteous. The word unrighteous, it's a a positional term, it's a legal term, it says something about where you stand with the God of the universe. Are you in right standing with God or not? Some of us think we are for all the wrong reasons. So being under sin, at the very least, means that you're not in right standing with God. If you were, as Paul describes later, you'd be be under grace, but you're not. You're under sin. But being under sin means more than this. To be under sin means sin has sway. It has power over you. I say this because of what Paul says, uh, what, what he says about sin later on. Romans 5, 21, Paul says... As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin is something that reigns. Then in chapter 6, Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So sin is something that enslaves us. Again, in chapter 6, we're told that sin uh, even has a way of, of dominating us. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. So we could sum up what Paul's saying here about being under sin as saying that we are slaves to sin. That's a really dark and sad place to be. And I wonder, for those of us who who are in Christ, who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, I wonder if we forget this at times. But if it weren't for the the bloody cross and that empty tomb, you and I would still be under sin. No wonder Paul prays the way that he does in chapter 6. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standards of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, having become slaves to righteousness. Praise God. Praise God that you've been rescued from that dark and sad place, Christian. Never to be slaves to sin again. Amen? So question one, Paul says, how bad? We're asking Paul, how bad is it? Paul's answer, it's worse than you can imagine. Sin's got a death grip on everyone, everywhere. Question two, you say, I hear you, Paul. But am I really as bad off as you say I am? Or is this really just For everyone else around me. Jack Miller again, he once said, The love of God is shallow unless there is depth to which it reaches. The love of God is shallow unless there is depth to which it reaches. But one way you can know that God's love for you is not shallow, but that it is rich and it is deep is by seeing that there is, in fact, a depth to which it reaches. In verses 11 through 18, Paul wants us to see and even be repulsed by how ruined we are when sin's power dominates our lives. He does does this by giving us seven ways that sin has left us in total ruin. Seven ways that Paul says sin ruins us. Or better yet, we could say here are seven reasons why you and I need the gospel. Seven reasons why we need the gospel. We're going to move through these quickly. First, we see that sin has ruined our very standing with God. Look at that, verse 10. Paul says, none is righteous. No, not one. All the right things you think you do for all the right reasons won't make you right with God in the end. Sin ruins our standing with God what else? Look at verse 11. Paul says the, this cancer of sin has spread and has contaminated our very minds. He says there is no one who understands. Now, I don't think Paul is saying uh, that we can't understand anything. Only that sin has so corrupted us to the very core that we have no hope within ourselves of making sense of the things that matter most in this life, and that is God's life-giving truth. So our minds are, are ruined. Our minds are polluted by sin. Not only has sin ruined our minds, it's ruined our motives too. We don't just get, we don't just not get God's truth. We want nothing to do with him, even if we give the appearance that we do. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 11. He says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. I think this grates against us, our our seeker-sensitive, our seeker-friendly culture that we live in. No one, Paul, no one seeks for God. I love playing hide-and-seek with my kids, when we play, uh, I'm usually stuck being the one uh, doing all the seeking. Sometimes uh, I'm allowed to do some of the hiding, too. Uh, I wonder how often we sort of, sort of slip into thinking that our relationship with God is, is one big cosmic game of hide and seek, where we're the ones doing all, all the seeking and God's doing all the hiding. And we think that God's somewhere out there just waiting to be found and if we look hard enough we'll find him but Paul seems to be saying the opposite keeping with this analogy of hide and seek Paul seems to be suggesting that we're not qualified to be the the seeker because no one seeks for god Paul says which makes us the one in hiding and if we're the ones in hiding that must mean that god is the one doing the seeking and this is exactly what the bible teaches us salvation didn't begin with you deciding to seek after god it begins with him choosing to seek us friend if you're truly seeking god this morning praise god but it's only because you've been sought after by him Christian, don't forget that you didn't seek God. God sought after you. You didn't find God. God found you. And he drew you sweetly to himself. Or as Jesus puts it, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The gospel, it loses its power. It loses its potency. It loses its Uh, Relevance, the second we get this twisted in our minds and in our hearts, and we turn this around. So our minds and our motives are tainted. What else? Well, sin has also ruined our wills. Look at the first part of verse 12. Paul says, "All All have turned aside. Here, Paul's likely echoing Isaiah 53, verse 6, where the prophets say, all have, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. There's a willfulness to our wandering, isn't there? At root, you and I don't want to follow Jesus. We don't want to, we want to go our own way. We think our way is the best way and so we listen to whoever we want to listen to and we we love whoever or whatever we want to love we look at whatever we want to look at we drink whatever we want to drink we have sex with whoever we want to have sex with like left to ourselves we go our own way a hundred percent of the time Sins not only ruined our minds, our motives, our wills, uh, Paul says it has ruined our tongues as well. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. Think of uh, rotting corpses. This should repulse us. Paul's saying your sinful words carry with them the stench of death and decay. Here's what that that stench smells like. He says they use their tongues to deceive. That word deceive can mean uh, flattery. Love Tim Keller's distinction between gossip and flattery. He says that gossip is something you say behind a person's back, but you'd never say to their face. Flattery is something you say something to their face, that maybe you'd never say behind their back. We're so guilty of this, aren't we? We wield our tongues to deceive others. But that's not all. Paul says the venom of asps is under their tongues, under their lips. As, it's as if we're, we're poised to sort of weaponize our words against each other. It's like we've got poison lurking under our lips. We're just waiting to spew it out at one another or those we think deserve it. This fits what we know to be true, doesn't it? I mean, how many hurtful things have you said only to wish that you could take those things back? Or how many times have you received those sorts of words that you even remember to this day. So often we wield our tongues for harm rather than good. We weaponize our words against one another rather than for one another. Think about some of your more recent interactions. I think of how I use my words with Kate and the kids. Do my words have the sweet aroma of life Are they life-giving? Or do they have the stench of death? Do they refresh and revive, stir up faith, hope, and love for Jesus in them? Or am I leaving a wake of destruction in my path with my words? How about you? Are your words either bringing life to those around you, or are they bringing death to those around you? Sin has wrecked havoc on our world of words, and it has ruined our relationships in so many ways. Look quickly with me at verse 15. Paul says, Their feet are swift to shed blood, meaning we're prone to inflict pain on each other when sin's power is prevailing in our lives. He goes on in their paths are ruin and misery like left to ourselves we'd leave nothing but a wake of relational destruction in our path because of this Paul says the way of peace they have not known so sin has ruined our standing with God it's ruined our minds and our wills our our motives, our words where does all this come from? Well, Paul tells us in verse 18. Here, Paul's just sort of summarizing everything that he said all the way up to this point. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So where does this leave us? Where does it leave us? Look at verse 19. Paul tells us, this in verses 19 and 20 says now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to god for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin one thing i want to highlight here paul paul says that every mouth will be stopped, and the whole world is going to be held accountable. Every mouth silenced, without excuse, everyone without excuse. Why? Because of what he says in verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being is justified in his sight. There is no hope of being right with God within ourselves. Whether you're new to Christianity or if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, after a passage like this, you need to know, well, then what hope is there for me? At the beginning of our time together, I give you half of Jack's quote. Here's the other half. He says, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you are more loved than you ever dared hope. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you are more loved than you ever dared hope. And I think, I can't think of a more fitting verses that capture this incredible news than the beautiful words that Paul says next. Look at verse 21. Paul says, But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Praise God. We may be ruined by sin, but we are never out of God's loving reach and his gracious grasp. The diagnosis is bad, but there is a cure. The first step toward believing in Jesus for the first time or applying that belief in a fresh way after you have received him is embracing the hopelessness of living by you for you. The good news of the gospel, friends, is that you can't manufacture your own righteousness. The cure for our ruined condition has come from outside of us. Coming to faith in Christ, it it means that you've walked away from trying to find the cure within yourself. It means that you've walked away from trying to earn God's favor and make up your own righteousness. When you become a Christian, it means that you saw the hopelessness of yourself and you've embraced Jesus as your only, only hope in life and in death. But it doesn't stop there. Because there is a cure, the hope of the gospel has the power to change everything. Not just us. The gospel has the power to change the way that we see ourselves, our successes, uh, our failures. The gospel has the power to transform our relationship with our spouses and our kids and our neighbors and our coworkers. The gospel can repair your broken marriage and heal wounded families and unite unreconciled friends. Man, when this takes root in us, it'll change the way we see our neighborhoods and our communities and our city. When the gospel takes over, entire cities and entire nations can be radically changed. That's the power of the gospel. And it starts with us, but it doesn't end with us. Because the gospel radically changes everything. And that is why Paul, all the way back in chapter 1, says, I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is, what? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So cheer up, Trinity. Trinity. You're worse, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you are more loved than you ever dared hope. So let's go live out our lives in light of this good news this week.